4: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Last night, the Supreme Court took its biggest step yet toward dismantling women's ability to access abortions. The majority decision, unsigned, declined to block a Texas law that even Chief Justice John Roberts described as unusual and unprecedented. While this is not technically the fall of Roe v. Wade, it will have both severe on-the-ground consequences and portends more monumental decisions could be coming from the conservative court. In a dissent, Justice Sonia Sotomayor wrote that a majority of justices have opted to bury their heads in the sand. After this news, we're devoting the whole hour to talking about the law, its antecedents, and the future of abortion access. I'm Alexis Madrigal, welcome to Forum. It's come to this, almost 50 years After Roe v. Wade enshrined the right to get an abortion into American jurisprudence, activists and conservative jurists are on the verge of ending these protections. Last night's decision to decline to block a Texas law that prohibits any abortions after six weeks may not be the case that is etched into the history books, but it's certainly a moment when a new and long feared reality is coming into view. The law was designed to evade legal overturn by placing the burden of enforcement not on state officials but by deputizing private citizens to sue anyone who performs or, quote, aids and abets an abortion procedure. It recalls the tortured legal decisions of the 19th century as African-Americans were stripped of their rights in the South and represents a major victory for anti-abortion campaigners who have sought to end abortion access without quite being able to overturn Roe v. Wade. We know many people want to ask questions about what the decision means. So what do you want to know about this ruling and this law. Give us a call now at 866 733 6786. That's 866 733 6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. Just happened last night, and we know that people have a, a lot they want to say. And here we're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. So today we're going to be joined by uh, different legal scholars. And first, we have David Levine, a professor at UC Hastings Law. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning, Alexis. Thanks for coming on. Um, just tell us about the scope and impact of this decision.
1: Well, with uh, one paragraph last night, the Supreme Court said an awful lot uh, by declining to uh, stop the, if the law coming into effect. Uh, the Supreme Court handed did hand a tremendous victory to abortion opponents in Texas because this law now takes effect and it just has this uh, t- uh, deterrent effect because of the idea that private citizens in Texas can take it upon themselves to sue abortion, uh, people who aid or abet an abortion, uh, not just people who are employees of a clinic, uh, but with somebody who helped fund an abortion uh, could be sued. And as a practical matter, anywhere in Texas. So even though the clinics might be re- uh, located in more urban places like, Austin or Houston. Uh, the case could be brought really in any of Texas's many counties. So you could go judge shopping for this as well. So it just creates this vigilante justice that we haven't seen before. It's quite stunning.
4: David, I mean, just as a as a layperson, this seems absolutely bananas. Like when you're reading how they this law uh, is proposed to be enforced, it just seems really wild. Why would this Texas law work like this?
1: Well, the whole purpose is to have achieved what they just did, uh, which is to make it hard to figure out who you would sue to bring what normally happens in these situations is that when you get these very strong uh, anti abortion statutes, what normally is done is that uh, people who are challengers, let's say, in an abortion clinic like the whole women's health, Uh, in Austin, uh, which has brought a couple of these uh, before, uh, would then sue state officials and say, you can't enforce this law against us because it's unconstitutional. The problem here is by deputizing everybody in Texas uh, as uh, vigilantes who might wanna sue, uh, it makes it very difficult to figure out who you would sue. Now, the plaintiffs, uh, Whole Women's Health, did sue a group of kind of representative defendants And the case was proceeding on track to at least to hear the challenge. Uh, The trial judge in the case, a federal judge sitting in Austin uh, had already dealt with the problem of whether the plaintiffs had appropriate defendants uh, and had said, yes, they did, and was going to hold a hearing on whether or not to stay this law uh, this past Monday. And the Fifth Circuit intervened and said, don't do that. Didn't explain why, but canceled that hearing. And so we ended up in the U.S. Supreme Court because Whole Women's Health was trying to get an emergency order uh, saying, basically, let us let us stop this until it can be fully challenged. So uh, exactly what the people who wrote this law wanted to happen, happened last night.
4: Hmm. I mean, the Supreme Court justices are clearly smart people, and it's obvious that the law was designed in this way. So that abortion access could be restricted without running afoul or at least without with making it procedurally difficult to uh, to attack the law. So (laughs) it seems silly to me that that this kind of two step process would not be something that the justices could see. Did any of the dissents try to address just that this law was achieving the same effect, but by different means?
1: Oh, they sure did. You got four dissents. Uh, The the, uh, majority opinion is an unsigned short opinion uh, saying, well, we see some procedural difficulties and so we're not saying anything about constitutionality of this law, even though there are some problems. But let's keep the lawsuit going, but without our emergency intervention. Uh, All four justices, Roberts, Sotomayor, Breyer, Kagan, all explained how procedurally wrong this was and how the court should have intervened at this point just to stay the operation of this law until its constitutionality could be assessed. And each one of those four opinions goes into it in different ways, but, but really explains what is wrong with the law and what's wrong with what the five justice majority did last night.
4: So you're really seeing this as a watershed moment for the court, where that conservative majority just says, "Yeah, that may all be true, but we're doing it anyway."
1: Uh, well, it's it's part and parcel what they've been doing now for several months. Uh, just, I think it's Justice Kagan who talked about this that the Supreme Court has been reaching out in these uh, in the COVID cases to protect its view of religion over and over again in these summary cases, rather than taking the case up in the full manner with a full review by the lower courts and then full briefing and oral argument. Instead, the court has relied on what they're now calling the shadow docket, which is these quick opinions are issued without full briefing and full analysis by the lower courts. And so that, yes, the majority has been Uh, feeling its oats, if you will, Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, reaching out to do more and more dramatic things outside of the normal process of the way the Supreme Court works as the top of a very complicated judicial system that normally gets its chance to weigh in so that everything can be fully assessed before the Supreme Court makes a momentous decision one way or the other. Yeah.
4: You know, historian Heather Cox Richardson uh, wrote last night that this law is uh, the wedge to establish this mechanism uh, of state level vigilantes is abortion. But the door is now open for and I'm quoting here open for extremist state legislatures to turn to private citizens to enforce any law that takes away an individual's legal right. Uh, Is that something you're also worried about?
1: Well, potentially that could happen. I think first off uh, is that other states will copy this if it ends up being upheld. Uh, It is a very effective way to close down abortion clinics because you can see in Texas already, uh, and I think it was Justice Sotomayor who appended a footnote saying, look at what's happened in the hours since uh, this law came into effect on midnight of September 1. So yeah, that could happen. So number one, it would be other states would pick up the same model and would say yeah let's do the same thing and then yes you could imagine other laws uh being enforced in the same way although there's not much that pushes people's buttons in quite the same way as abortion but imagine say if uh california or the state of new york decided to enforce gun rights uh or gun control Uh, with private vigilante lawsuits. You can imagine the Supreme Court weighing in very differently than they did last night.
4: We're talking about the Supreme Court's decision to not block a Texas law banning abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. Right now, we have David Levine, a professor at UC Hastings Law with us. We want to know, how do you feel about the Texas law and the Supreme Court's order? Are you concerned about whether Roe v. Wade will be overturned, particularly by this Court. Give us a call now at 866 733 6786. That's 866 733 6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. and We'd like to bring Stacy from San Francisco into the conversation.
2: Hi there. Thanks for Hi. taking my call. Um, I'm really glad uh, you almost took my entire question with the previous comment uh, in that this really seems to be the tip of the iceberg in terms of the issues that could be. Uh, leveraged into uh, extremist legislatures and turning the entire population uh, against one another. I I think of the Stasi of of Eastern Europe as a a great example of the kinds of things that could occur. Uh, But does this not also dramatically diminish the power of the Supreme Court itself? Because they've essentially established a mechanism uh, by which the uh, Supreme Court can be ignored and that the federal government can be ignored completely by state legislatures.
4: David Levine? Uh, It's a very interesting
1: question. Uh, Well, ignored in the sense that if you write legislation that doesn't involve any federal issues, then yes, you can keep the federal courts and you can keep uh, the U.S. Supreme Court out of uh, the, out of, uh, state business. So sometimes that happens and there's no federal interest in something. Uh, but but you're quite right that uh, this could lead to further vigilantism. You know, the other example I just thought of is what about in these states that are concerned about voter fraud? Why not pass a statute saying any citizen can start suing county clerks, uh, people who are the, uh, you know, just the volunteers who are helping to count votes or to be at uh, postal at uh polls uh, and sue them because of some sort of made up concern about voter fraud. Uh, yeah, it, it is really pernicious and it, it uh, needs to be shut down, but it, it may take some time before that happens.
4: Do we know how many other states are considering have already passed or who are going to cut and paste this law into effect outside of Texas?
1: I'm not, you know, I'm not aware of any others, but if this is upheld, then, gosh, of course, they'll do it. Now, all this might be obviated because the Supreme Court does have a straight-up abortion case in front of it now out of Mississippi. Uh, It's not a six-week statute, but I think it's a 15-week statute, meaning that it can ban abortion past, I think it was 15 weeks And in that case, that's a normal setup. in that the clinic in Mississippi sued the appropriate state officials. Uh, And that case is going to be heard in, I think it's in December. And the Supreme Court could uh, easily knock down or restrict Roe versus Wade, which might mean we don't need these statutes from the point of view of abortion protesters.
4: We're talking about the Supreme Court's decision to not block a Texas law banning abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll be back with more Forum after the break. We're talking about the Supreme Court's decision to not block a Texas law banning abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. And we want to hear from you. What are your questions about this court and its approach to jurisprudence and abortion specifically? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at KQED .org. Julia writes, this Texas law reminds me of the Salem Witch Trials. Joseph asks, are there any other well-known tort statutes that empower citizens to enforce a state law? Doesn't this have a firm basis under common law? We'll come back to some of those questions soon. Uh, We want to introduce, we have David Levine with us, a professor at UC Hastings Law, and we want to introduce Michelle Goodwin-Chancellor. She's professor and director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at UC Irvine School of Law. Her most recent book is Policing the Womb, Invisible Women, and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Michelle, can I just get your reaction to this? How do you see this in the long sweep of uh, the activism to reduce and restrict access to abortions?
5: Well, it's a deeply uh, alarming uh, situation that we're now in. The Texas law itself is deeply alarming, and the Supreme Court's shadow uh, docket, the opinion in this case, is also deeply troubling. We have a Supreme Court That has decided, as Justice Sotomayor says, to put its head in the sand or, as Chief Justice John Roberts has said, um, to uh, avoid just simply leaving this alone, which, in his opinion, is what the Supreme Court um, should have done by issuing a stay. The fact that the Supreme Court did not shows a number of things to us. It shows, one, that the conservative majority on the court Um, is unwilling to intervene on matters so egregious as this, which really turned the tide in reproductive rights in the United States. And then secondly, what the law itself also shows is that um, basically at six weeks, a person may not know that she is pregnant. So this is essentially overturning Roe for the state of Texas. But even more alarming with that is that citizens are deputized to do the enforcing of this law itself. That's dangerous for a number of reasons. But this was strategically done by Texas in order to tie the hands of individuals who would seek to challenge the law. And the result of it is the outcome that we see with the Supreme Court handing the majority of conservatives on the court exactly what they would want, which was to say, well, we don't have to rule on the merits of this uh, because our hands are tied in this procedural morass. And because our hands are tied in this procedural morass, we see no reason to intervene on behalf of women whose reproductive rights have now been attacked in Texas.
4: Before the break, David Levine was referencing another case that's coming uh, before the Supreme Court from Mississippi, uh, known as the Dobbs case, which is a slightly less restrictive uh, abortion bill that just directly challenges Roe v. Wade. What do you see as what do you see this case says or this decision says about that uh, case that's coming down the pike, Dobbs?
5: So, well, what we should understand is that this is a very well-oiled machine um, that we're seeing now. You can't take these cases and instances as being isolated. They are part of a broader, deeper movement that has been well-funded, and the effort has been not the strike against uh, Roe or Planned Parenthood v. Casey with just one case, but instead it's really been a death by a thousand strikes and to see which strike would work. So you're right, the Mississippi case is a bit different. Rather than a six-week abortion ban, it's a 15-week abortion ban that provides no exception in cases of rape or incest. Now, the Supreme Court could decide to strike down the law altogether. It could choose to strike down a part of the law But what is interesting, given and alarming, given what we have just seen from the Supreme Court, is that even if they do strike down the law altogether, all Mississippi has to do, Mississippi lawmakers, is enact a law like Texas. So they've figured out which card happens to be the Trump card to play in uh, undoing abortion rights in the United States. And now they've just seen the Texas card. Is the card to play. And right now, I would guarantee you that in these other legislatures that have leaned into anti-abortion um, legislating, they're taking this up. Yeah.
4: We've been talking about the Supreme Court's decision around a Texas law that sort of allows Vigilantes uh, instead of the state to try to stop people from having abortions We're joined by David Levine, a professor at UC Hastings Law You just heard from Michelle Goodwin-Chancellor, a professor at UC UC Irvine School of Law uh, And her most recent book is Policing the Womb, Invisible Women And the Criminalization of Motherhood And we'd like to add Mary Ziegler, a professor of law at Florida State uh, Into our conversation Her most recent book is Abortion and the Law in America, Roe v. Wade to the Present Welcome, Mary
6: Thanks for having me.
4: So I, I want to ask you about the specific kind of activism that has gone on in Texas. You wrote a great story about it in The Atlantic that has sort of been that you describe essentially the strategy of sort of death by a thousand cuts for abortion access.
6: Yeah, I mean, so there was always a question um, about whether the end of Roe should come through civil lawsuits like this or prohibitions that that debate generally was won by the criminal pro because they always a repudiation of roe right they wanted the Supreme Court to say uh you know as an unborn child there is no abortion rights abortion has nothing to do with equality for women they want a kind of symbolic win and of course intangible term help because they wanted the opportunity to say that the 14 recognizes the of and that abortion is unconstitutional everywhere in California as well as in places like Alabama. Um, so, the civil route, which was the sort of way to get around Roe, um, was less attractive for that reason. But it always had, and most historically were in Texas, people who argued that, uh, particularly at times when Roe seemed secure, that the way was to sue abortion providers out of existence to make their insurance bills prohibit <laughs> high. Um, and that strategy, I think, reemerged in Texas recently because the anti-abortion movement is divided between a kind of a populist um, people who want to ban abortion right now, some of whom have connections to violent organizations or to um, organizations that blockade abortion clinics, and people who wanted to sort of remain part of the the conservative mainstream to stick more to legal and political. strategy. Texas's bill was designed to have something for every will, because it allowed for an immediate abortion ban, but there was at least a pretense that this was constitutional and a, a strategy for a court that wanted to avoid the big ticket issues. So um, this, this bill, I think in a way is a snapshot of, of where the anti-abortion movement is right now. Um, and it'll tell us a lot about where things may be going in other states.
4: Well, it even seems like the little, little specific features of the law, like the fact that you can file in one county and the, the court will have to people will have to go to that county rather than request a transfer somewhere closer to them. And some of these other kind of fine grain details also seem like the product of uh, a well honed mechanism that was developed over a long time.
6: Yeah, it was. Um, the, the, most people think that the Texas, well, Texas right to life is behind this bill. That's an affiliate of a kind of D.C.-based giant in the anti-abortion movement, the National Right to Life Committee. Um, the, the, a former Texas solicitor general is widely believed to be the kind of primary author of this bill. Um, and so these are pretty legally sophisticated folks. These are people with connections to the Federalist Society um, these are people with ties to elite law schools, so the the A team, if you will, of the anti-abortion movement that's that's writing this bill and Um, But again, it's really striking. It tells you a lot about what the anti-abortion movement thinks about the Supreme Court. That Texas is the only law state to pass this bill so far. It's certainly not the only state to think about it. It's the only state where. A, a, legislators were not so sure that the court was going to overrule Roe, that they thought it it was worth bothering other states at the Supreme Court and saying, we want criminalization and we're going to get it. You know, we just have to wait a few months. This isn't, there's no need to do this on the side. If we're just patient, the Supreme Court will give us everything we want.
4: I want to bring in Shannon from Lafayette. Welcome to the show.
6: Hi, can you hear me?
4: Yes, we can. Thanks for joining us.
6: Okay.
2: So I had a couple of questions about some things I'd heard about this law and wanting to confirm with the lawyers if it's true. Number one, I heard that you didn't have to be a resident in the state of Texas to file the suit, meaning that any citizen from any place in the world would be allowed to sue someone under this law. And secondly, that about the aiding and abetting part, where, you know, where does that end? Meaning like, If it was an Uber driver that took somebody to a clinic, would they be at risk? If it was a secretary who picked up the phone, if it was the parents of a person who went, like, where does how how far does that extend? Mm -hmm. And then secondly, if we're deputizing people for this kind of enforcement, then what would stop a state from deputizing people to enforce Roe v. Wade, meaning like, uh, you know, suing people who interfered with it? Hmm. And I'll take my answer up there. Thank sure.
4: you. For that first uh, couple of questions, David Levine, um, do you have to be a resident to file a suit? And where does the aiding and abetting part of this law end?
1: It is only Texas residents uh, that that have the right to sue uh, the aid. And, but it can be anywhere in the state. What What is amazing is how they've allowed this to, uh, the plaintiffs can then pick their forum uh, and Go find some pretty conservative judges to hear the case, uh, and then on the aiding and abetting, it does seem as if it could go quite far. Uh, so that if you know, if you knowingly helped uh, somebody, uh, yeah, uh, give somebody a ride and drop them off at a clinic. Uh, well, what do you think they're doing at that clinic? Uh, somebody, a parent who provided the money to help out, uh, who was taking care of their child. Uh, yeah, it it could go quite far. The the Person, uh, The person who is pregnant uh, is exempt from being sued, but everybody else around them, so employees of the clinic, you name it, the receptionist at the clinic, the person who set up your appointment, on and on and on uh, could potentially be sued. And that's why this has such massive deterrence value because nobody wants to have to take the risk of being sued, having to pay the other side's attorney's fees Uh, pay for an attorney to to defend you in a distant place. Texas is a very big place after all. And then you'd have to pay a minimum of ten thousand dollars and maybe more after that.
4: I wanted to uh, throw the other part of that question to Michelle Goodwin, Chancellor Professor at UC Irvine School of Law, which was if we're deputizing people to enforce the state laws, is there basically a reproductive rights response using some of these same mechanisms?
5: Well, that's a really good question. But before we go on to is there a response for the other side, let's understand the way in which deputizing Texas citizens to do this ultimately weaponizes vigilanteism, and that's not an extreme comment. What we haven't done is to really pay attention to the violence that already takes place every day at abortion clinics in the United States, the normalization of surveillance, of stalking, of spitting on people such that clinics have to hire security guards, put out cameras, volunteers have to come to protect patients. That's the starting point without a law that already bakes in Harassment. And so I think it's really important to understand just how uh, incredibly harmful this law is because now it legitimizes harassment. So is it a law that can be flipped on its head where the other side can somehow gain some momentum with this? Well, you know, I think that's really hopeful type of thinking because ultimately we have to be clear about where the, the circuit in which Texas uh, occupies, which is the Fifth Circuit. And we have to be mindful about this Supreme Court. Both institutions have shown an unwillingness Uh, to be thoughtful, uh, and to um, do the work of the court in upholding justice, civil rights, and civil liberties, specifically as related to abortion rights. We would see the absurdity of this law if it related to gun rights. Can you imagine in Texas that a private individual would have a right to interfere with anyone aiding and abetting taking someone to a pawn shop to obtain a gun, Or on the other hand, if it related to something like colonoscopies or vasectomies, we would see the absurdity that involves abortion has in many ways numbed people to seeing um, the extreme effects.
4: Mary Ziegler, professor of law at Florida State University, I want to ask you about who this law is really going to hurt. We know that there are people who are more more vulnerable because they have a difficult time accessing abortions further away. They can't leave the state. They don't have the money to. Can you tell us about what we know about that?
6: Yeah, I mean, I think that the people who the law is going to hurt are primarily going to be um, low income people of color. We've already seen evidence of this um, in research uh, from the turnaway study on what happens to people when they're they're unable to access abortion. And when you're looking in particular at um, travel out of state or potentially buying abortion medication, you're going to see people struggle to do that more when they have fewer resources in the first place. Um, it's also worth saying that the medication abortion option is trickier than it sounds because Texas is working to shut down abortion medication after the seventh week of pregnancy, although people will almost certainly break the law. Um, The question will become what Texas does about that. Texas, um, at the moment, uh, as we were saying earlier, doesn't um, include pregnant people in the group of folks who can be sued. But it's sort of hard to see how long that's going to last if abortion medication can be used by those people um, as a way to sort of circumvent what this law is trying to accomplish. Um, And, of course, you know, we're talking about a region of the country where poverty is already serious, where health outcomes for people of color are already poor. And there's no reason that this law is going to do anything other than exacerbate those kinds of disparities.
4: Mary Ziegler, let's stay with you. Jack tweets, are there any potential holes in this law based on issues related to medical privacy? How can potential plaintiffs get proof that someone had an abortion? Is rumor enough to bring a case? Don't people have a right to medical privacy?
6: Uh, Well, people certainly have a right to medical privacy. There's going to be, there already is um, kind of an industry in place in Texas just to try to smoke out people who are performing abortions or aiding other people in having abortions. So this is going to to rely on the kind of the rumor mill, right? I mean, people are going to have to be um, reporting their neighbors, their family members. Um, Some people will be easier to identify than others if you're thinking about people aiding or abetting. You know, obviously, anti-abortion groups are going to be looking at abortion funds and other entities that help people find abortions um, as potential defendants in lawsuits. Um, But otherwise, it's going to rely on kind of a a reporting system, something that's sort of, you know, reminiscent. I mean, it's I'm exaggerating a little but reminiscent of the Salem witch trials where neighbors are going to have to to report on neighbors. And then it'll just be left to the courts in Texas to work out who's telling the truth. Um, And that too is is disturbing because it, it makes what's already a stigmatizing experience for pregnant people potentially that much more frightening, and especially when it comes to what the community is willing to do. Yeah. A listener writes but the like slope. To to that. Oh, go ahead, go ahead.
5: Yeah, which is that you know, let's be clear that this is all a part of a much longer um, playbook that's really hard for us to address in the United States. And this is thinking about slavery. So if, if we were to think about, was there ever a law that deputized private citizens and that incentivized private citizens through some form of pecuniary gain to surveil and stalk people? <laughs> and reflect them. Yes, that's the Fugitive Slave Act. Um, And and this is not being extreme or extremist to identify that was in law. These were laws that were never overturned. And when the Supreme Court had the opportunity to intervene on behalf of black people who were... by bounty hunters, it chose.
4: Michelle Goodwin, Chancellor, making we're just losing you. We're talking about the Supreme Court's decision to not block a Texas law banning abortion after six weeks of pregnancy and the myriad legal issues that it raises with David Levine, a professor at UC Hastings Law, Michelle Goodwin from Chancellor from UC Irvine, and Mary Ziegler from Florida State University. And we do want to hear from you. Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. We'll be back with more Forum after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Just before the break, Michelle Goodwin, the Chancellor's Professor and Director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at UC Irvine School of Law, was describing one of the antecedents of a recent Texas law banning abortions after six weeks of pregnancy and empowering private citizens to enforce that rather than the state. And we, we just lost you. I know you're joining us from a yeah. train. Thank you for yeah. that. Um, but I wanted thank you to give you. you give you a chance to finish the point about the Fugitive Slave Act and its thank you. resemblance.
5: Yes. And so the, the the resemblance is quite specific and uncanny. And so if we were thinking about it, you know very sophisticated legal minds involved in this clearly they're casting a broad and deep net through american history and one could pluck from American history, the Fugitive Slave Acts, which did exactly what this law actually does, deputizing private citizens to carry out an agenda that infringes on the human rights, civil liberties, um, civil rights of other people, and that does so through financial incentives. Um, That law weaponized individuals to be able to stalk surveil and apprehend Black people all over the place. And, you know, one can still find the posters online warning people in Boston and Philadelphia to be careful, look over their shoulders. But as one thinks about this and you read the writings of the time, I wouldn't wish on anyone that feeling of having to look over the shoulder, um, that feeling of being stalked, that feeling of any given person being able to bring you before a magistrate in order for them to get some bounty on your head. And this is essentially what the Texas law now provides for. And one can't separate this from what Mary Ziegler was just mentioning as well, which is that in Texas, the people who will be most affected by this happen to be Poor women of color.
4: Caller Curran from Oakland. Corinne, excuse me. Um, would love to welcome you into the show.
0: Yes, no, thank you. Um, I just want to say to Professor Goodwin, thank you so much for tying that Fugitive Slave Act into this current um, Texas bill that, that's been passed and upheld in the Supreme Court. You know, look. It's not far-fetched at all. We've seen over the past year the rise of the description of of the Karen. And Karens continue to deputize themselves to police black bodies all over this country. And now with social media, we're seeing it more and more. What I wanted to touch on, what I was hoping that you touch on, and again, I really appreciate you tying that in, because that's the absolute terror that black people have lived in since, you know, Slavery, quite frankly, absolutely. What do? You, it, it, it's really a, a horror film, and and it feels so good to be validated instead of gaslit when people tell mm-hmm. you that you're insane. <laughs> yeah. What do you see? I, I really see this as an economic justice issue for women, and I'm just surprised to see that the to see that we're back at back here again. I mean, this is, mm-hmm. seems to me to be an effort to keep women not only you know criminal criminalize motherhood. But also to keep us economically depressed for some depraved
5: reason. What what do you what do you think about that? Well, I'd be happy to take that on. You know, you you touch on so much that's powerful right there. We can't divorce race from this. We can't divorce socioeconomics from this. Uh, people who have the capacity, women who have the capacity to leave Mississippi to leave. Uh, Texas, Louisiana, to obtain abortions. They will. And you're right to touch on what this means in terms of power and power and patriarchy. Um, There are certain things that are important to note. The Texas legislature is overwhelmingly male. Uh, it is overwhelmingly white male. This is not a legislature that actually broadly represents the people of the state of Texas. Now, of course, there can be those who would say, well, just vote them out of office, but it is still worth Seeing that the people who are legislating about what happens in individuals' uteruses um, are people who don't have them um, and people who um, have not shown a regard even for people who intend to stay pregnant. So something we haven't talked about in this conversation happens to be the incredibly alarming and dangerous maternal mortality rate. In Texas, so that while Texas legislators have said, well, we legislate on abortion because we care about women's health, we must be so spurious and specious, right? Because we all know, and the Supreme Court has cited just a few years ago, that a person is 14 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term than by terminating it. That's exactly what the Supreme Court uh, wrote about in Whole Woman's Healthy Hellerstadt, another Texas case. But even more than that, Texas has been described as the most dangerous place in the developed world to be pregnant. And that's not because you just don't have an access to an abortion. It is because it's just incredibly unsafe there. And the kinds of help and support that people need while they're pregnant is just not available in Texas. And to add to that, we know that nationally, black women are three and a half times more likely to die during pregnancy than white women are. That only magnifies in Texas. And that shows us how incredibly dangerous this is. In many ways, Texas has imposed a bounty and death sentence on the on women in that state, just given its own statistics, not statistics that I make up or you make up, but these are statistics from their Department of Health that inform us of this.
4: That was Michelle Goodwin, Chancellor's Professor and Director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at UC Irvine School of Law, and her most recent book is Policing the Womb, Invisible Women, and the Criminalization of Motherhood. We're also joined by Mary Ziegler, professor of law at Florida State. Her most recent book is Abortion and the Law in America, Roe v. Wade to the Present, and David Levine, a professor at UC Hastings Law. I also want to invite in Joanna Grossman, professor of law at Southern Methodist University's Dedman School of Law. She's also a board member of Jane's Due Process, a group which is uh, helps teens access abortion and birth control in texas welcome joanna
3: thank you my pleasure to be here not not happy topic but an yeah. important one
4: um, can you tell us what's what's happening you're in texas you're in touch with the people on the ground who are providing reproductive health services um what, what happened yesterday as this law really went into effect
3: i mean what happened yesterday is um most of what's Uh, constitutes reproductive health care here is sort of come to a grinding halt. So there's, you know, what happened yesterday at a very micro level, there are people all over the state who had appointments, who now don't have appointments and don't have any access to abortion care. Um, And then, of course, there's everything happening in the more medium and longer term, which is, there's, first of all, a lot of work still going into trying to block the law um, in a variety of lawsuits. Um, but basically everything's at a standstill, right? That the providers for the most part can't do their jobs, which means patients don't have care and the huge network that's built up to try to make reproductive healthcare accessible in such a hostile environment, um, uh, including Jane's Due Process, the group I'm on the board of. Um, you know, we're all in sort of a holding pattern because A lot of the things that that whole network does are now covered by this law, which the Supreme Court allowed to take effect. Are you scared? Very much so. Yeah. Very much so. I mean, I think um, it's hard to even wrap one's head around what this means. Um, uh, Professor Goodwin just gave us a great sort of rundown on what. Reproductive health care looks like on the ground in Texas in terms of the bigger picture, um, and but that's really such an important part of what's going on here. Um, it's never been just about abortion. Obviously, it's about all these other things. But the truth is, as as Professor Goodwin mentioned, right, having a baby in Texas is actually a relatively dangerous activity. Um, we don't have Medicaid expansion. We don't have um, good care, um, or access to insurance for any group. Um, we don't have, um, good history with maternal mortality. We don't have good access to birth control. We don't have, um, good access or funding for, um, women's health screenings like cervical cancer and breast cancer screenings. Um, so there's, there's no one piece of this that, um, explains the whole picture. It really is a system in which, um, women are being, kept down, deprived of their basic rights and deprived of the the ability in some cases to stay alive. Um, So yeah, am I scared? I'm very scared. I'm scared for what this means for the future of the country but right now I'm scared for my clients. I represent minors who seek um, judicial bypasses um, to get abortions without parental consent. And um, so I know in a very um, human level what the impact is here.
4: What's your next move? I mean, you all have been fighting this fight for for decades in Texas. So what this isn't the end, obviously. So what what happens next for you?
3: I think the immediate work is trying to um, meet the needs of the women in Texas, um, which is to try to help them get out of state. Um, but you remember, Texas is a very big state, 30 million people. Um, uh, in 2018, the last set of available, I think last set of available data, you know, there are about 55,000 abortions performed in Texas in an average year. Um, so that's 55,000 people who now, um, 90% of them will have to go to another state, um, which going to another state is always a challenge, but in a state that's physically the size of Texas, that means that the average distance a person has to travel for abortion care now has gone up to, uh, the average distance to about 250 miles. And for lots of people, it's gonna be um, even more than that. Um, so I think the immediate one thing that's going on is a lot of effort into abortion funds and setting up you know, interstate networks and trying to figure out how to get all of those people Um, the care that they need. And then there's a whole separate track, obviously, working on challenging the law. There are a variety of state lawsuits, some of which have already been filed, some of which will be filed in the coming days. Um, The federal lawsuit will end up now back in the district court, and there will be continuing litigation. Um, And then there's going to be all these bounty hunter suits. So the uh, Right to Life Network is, you know, busy collecting um, Google forms where you report people that you suspect of having abortions, as Professor Ziegler talked about, the sort of rumor mill is in full uh, full action. And so um, they're busy figuring out who to sue. And that, um, I think we haven't really even grappled with what that's gonna look like for the legal system when any person for any reason can sue as many people as have touch an abortion, right, of any connection to an abortion. I mean, it's sort of crippling to even imagine. Um, And then I think the bigger question is the political question, which is how do you dismantle this GOP block that um, has basically preserved its own power by changing the voting rules and gerrymandering to be able to pass highly unpopular policies and impose them on us? This is the not at all representative government, not just in as Professor Goodwin suggested, and you look at them, and they don't look like people in Texas, but um, they aren't what people in Texas want, right? They, this is not, they, they do not have popular policies. People have, 70 plus percent of the U.S. supports abortion rights. Um, so this is not a popular policy. So now we got to figure out how to, they've also just changed all the voting rights to make it even harder to get them out of office. So, um, I don't know. Politically, yeah. the, the big questions are political,
4: I think. Yeah. Joanna Grossman, <laughs> professor of law at Southern Methodist University's Dedman School of Law and a board member of Jane's Due Process, a group which helps teens access abortion and birth control in Texas. Thank you so much for joining us. I want to let you go because I know you, you've got a, you've got a big to do list, as we just heard. Um. want to bring thank in. You. Thank you so much. I want to bring in April from Belmont.
0: Hi. Um, I used to get um, my contraception from Planned Parenthood, Um, and then I also had a uh, missed miscarriage where I went to a clinic that removed the pregnancy. Um, What is going to happen for people in similar situations to mine are people who are going to Planned Parenthood uh, to get contraception also going to be, you know, have the people who drove them there. Uh, be sued for bringing them just to get birth control. Mary Ziegler?
6: Yeah, um, I think it's unclear. So the only thing we know from the statute is that uh, the statute requires that aiding and abetting be knowing. So then the question becomes what does it mean to knowingly do something? So obviously going, going to Planned Parenthood is probably not enough to establish that you're knowingly aiding or abetting anything because Planned Parenthood Um, as the caller suggested, provides lots of other services. But once you have a bill like this in place, you're kind of leaving it in the hands of the Texas courts, knowing full well that you're allowed to bring your case to whichever conservative judge you want in whichever conservative county you want. And so we just quite simply don't know what what knowing is going to look like to those folks. So, I I mean, I would would like to say that if you're not actually looking for an abortion at all, um, that this law won't affect you, but it's not clear. I mean, the other thing of course is down the road, if we're talking about absolute abortion bans, we'll have to deal with the question of what we mean by abortion and whether that encompasses, for example, in the minds of abortion opponents, things like the morning after pill, We don't have to confront those questions yet because Texas has drawn the line at six weeks, which, while it's, you know, ridiculously early, doesn't seem to bring in other forms of contraception. But uh, I think all of those are questions we'll have to confront down the line.
4: Uh, uh, Listener Lori writes, President Biden just said that the federal government will act to preserve abortion access in Texas. And I wonder what can be done in Congress or the executive branch to counteract the Texas laws. David Levine.
1: Uh, it's not obvious what could be done at this point. I suppose the Justice Department could uh, join the federal suit as a friend of the court and weigh in uh, to explain why the law ought to be knocked down. But it's it's not at all clear uh, that the president can do much more than that at this point.
5: Hmm. Michelle Goodwin. It is worth noting that there is the Women's Health Protection Act, which Senator uh, Blumenfall Uh, has uh, proposed, it now has more sponsors um, than ever before, but still, getting something through this Congress is more illusory than real. But, you know, it is worth mentioning that there is legislation that seeks to codify Roe v. Wade when that legislation might make its way successfully through the House of Representatives and the Senate is another matter.
4: Michelle Goodwin, where do you, someone who's written books about this, you've directed this uh, Center for Biotechnology and, and Global Health Policy. Like, after this decision, where do you go?
5: Well, after this decision, I think that it's really important that one, uh, that, that people who are committed uh, to the Furtherance of women's rights, of LGBTQ equality, of reproductive health rights and justice, that they don't give up, right? So, just as this has been a very well oiled machine and campaign that leads us to where we are today with the uh, Texas law, the Mississippi law, et cetera, uh, it's also important to take lessons from the past too, which is to say that. Um, There must be some hope, you know, if if I could draw one other parallel, you know, when I think about just the sort of depravity of uh, American chattel slavery, there are times in which I think about what was the message that a mother had to tell her daughter the night before.
4: Oh, no, we have lost you, uh, Michelle Goodwin. On a very tough note um, I want to have a couple listener Are you hear me now? oh you're back okay continue have about, so just sorry. about a minute wonder... I'm sorry
5: so anyway I think that there's a lot to be said about um activism, um, about hope, about the legislative enterprise amongst members of Congress. There's a lot to be said about voting and trying to vote out uh, those legislators in Texas. And there's a lot to be said about women's activism and supporting women coming into political leadership.
4: We've been talking about the current moment in abortion rights with David Levine, uh, Levine, a professor at UC Hastings Law School, Michelle Goodwin, who you just heard, a professor at UC Irvine School of Law, and Mary Ziegler, professor of law at Florida State University. Thank you so much to all of our guests who joined us on short notice as this decision came down. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with guest host Ariana Prail.